The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the race to open ancient scrolls from Herculaneum using artificial intelligence, a new right-wing president of the Venice Biennale, and a photograph by Dorothea Lange. As global political leaders, key figures in the tech industry and academics meet at Bletchley Park in the UK for a two-day summit on artificial intelligence and particularly the risks of these new technologies and how they could be mitigated, we look at a project that reflects AI's extraordinary potential. The Vesuvius Challenge aims to use AI technologies to unlock the texts in the papyrus scrolls that were carbonised when the Roman city of Herculaneum was covered in ash and pumice after the eruption of the Vesuvius volcano in 79 AD. I speak first to Brent Seals, the computer scientist behind the project, about the technologies involved, and then to Andrew Wallace-Hadrill, Director of Research and Honorary Professor of Roman Studies at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, a specialist in the history of Herculaneum, about what the scrolls might contain. In modern-day Italy, the country's culture minister has designated Pietrangelo Buttafuoco, a right-wing journalist and author whose books include a literary portrait of Silvio Berlusconi, as the next president of the Venice Biennale, the latest in a series of appointments that opposition politicians describe as chilling. I talked to the art newspaper's correspondent in Italy, James Imam. And this episode's work of the week is Dorothea Lang's photograph, Maynard and Dan Dixon, made in 1930. Philip Brookman, the curator of a new exhibition dedicated to Lang's portraiture at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, tells us more. On theartnewspaper.com, you can access our latest subscription offer. Get a subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted, covering the city of Herculaneum on the Bay of Naples in 25 metres of ash and pumice. Its most distinguished building was the Villa of the Papyri, so-called because it contained thousands of papyrus scrolls in the only library from the ancient Mediterranean to have survived. Since Herculaneum was rediscovered in the 18th century, some of the scrolls have been unrolled and interpreted, but the vast majority remain locked in carbonisation. Now, there's hope that artificial intelligence may hold the key to unlocking them. The Vesuvius Challenge is a machine learning and computer vision competition launched in the US, which encourages anyone and everyone with the technical know-how to read two papyri from the collection of the Institut de France. Last month, it was announced that Luke Farriter, a college student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, had won the $40,000 First Letters Prize, which required contestants to find at least 10 letters in a four-square centimetre area in one of the scrolls. The word was porphyrus, either an adjective meaning purple, or a noun meaning purple dye or cloths of purple. Another student, Yusuf Nada, an Egyptian biorobotics graduate student at the Freie Universität in Berlin, independently identified the same letters using a different model. So the race is now on to win the $700,000 grand prize, which will go to the first team to read four passages of text from the inside of the two intact scrolls. One of the creators of the challenge is Brent Seals, the alumni professor of computer science at the University of Kentucky, whose research for the past 20 years has been focused on using technology to restore and redeem historical artefacts. His invention of virtual unwrapping is crucial to the ability to decipher the scrolls using AI. I spoke to Seals about the project. 
Brent, is it right that you've been looking at the Herculaneum scrolls for a number of years, even over a decade now, and, and finally these breakthroughs are coming through thick and fast? Yeah, that's right. It's a really exciting moment because it's been more than a decade, actually, and now we're standing on the edge of extracting text uh, that's just fantastic. Can you tell us more about your work in terms of somehow working with carbonized scrolls in a way that is non-invasive? Because it's an extraordinary series of technological breakthroughs, right? It is. We evolved into working with the Herculaneum collection. It, w- it wasn't the first thing we started with, but codices, damaged manuscripts, book bindings, they all present really intriguing possibilities for extracting text that is not you know, directly available. But, I mean, Herculaneum is sort of the iconic example of that, right? It's the holy grail of scrolls. (laughs) Honestly, yeah, it is. And, you know, to sort of mix medieval with uh, the ancient, because the scrolls, of course, come from antiquity. But, But yes, I mean, it's a huge technical demonstration of the confluence of three or four different really important technologies to be able to read something from inside those damaged scrolls. Would you mind taking us through in the most layman's terms way, if you like, the process? Because the fundamental technology behind how to get into the scrolls relates to CT scans effectively, right? That's right. I mean, computed tomography won the Nobel Prize, basically. Its inventors in 1979 received a Nobel Prize. And it's an amazing technology. And it gives you an opportunity to see non-invasively inside something using x-ray and not just a single look at something like a photograph, but actually the three-dimensional structure inside something. And then from there, you develop technologies to somehow get to the text and to effectively provide a model from which AI could work. So in other words, machine learning could use this sort of ground data in order to interpret the scrolls. That's right. At every stage, you sort of have to accept a diminished thing and then figure out a technical way to to overcome the thing that's missing. So using x-ray is not really what we want to do because we'd like to be able to open it up and just photograph it with controlled lighting. But we accept that x-ray is going to give us a diminished view. And then we have to figure out, okay, how do we now recover what we lost by using x-ray? And and that's true for everything else. I mean, virtual unwrapping, I mean, even once you get the x-ray, it doesn't fix the structure of what you're looking at. The structure is all messed up, right? The pages can't be open. The papyrus is wrinkled and broken. And so we have to overcome that to get to the point where we can do the reading. Right. And in terms of this particular form of papyri, the x-ray system is even harder, is that right, because of the nature of the ink that was used? Tomography and x-ray in general give you a a view of the densities of what the x-rays are passing through. And density, in fact, isn't exactly what you want because the ink doesn't really have a density that's different from the papyrus. It's made from really the same material, and then it's been carbonized in a way that makes it really look almost the same in the x-ray images. So, yes, we have to do some fancy pants things, if you will. Um, It's kind of a fanciful way to think about the sophistication that we have with AI approaches to be able to solve that exact problem. Right. And in terms of how you've done that, there's this relatively new aspect, which is this competition. So there's been steady progress made over a period of years, right? But the competition has has given a new impetus to that research? Yes. Working with Daniel Gross and uh, Nat Friedman has been fantastic because in their experience, they have a huge ability to draw talent from the world to be interested and to actually spend time working on something like, you know, reading Herculaneum. So tell us more about that. So the grand prize is $700,000, but 
but the prize for reading letters has already been won. Tell us more about that. That's right. We worked together to put the basics of the contest in place so that a very low bar had to be uh, crossed in order to start to work with the data that we have and with the techniques that we have. There are tutorials online explaining how things work. And in relatively short order, we had over 2,000 contestants working away on the first phase of the contest, which we ran on the platform called Kaggle. And then shortly after that, we opened the contest up to move toward the grand prize. And the first step was to reveal the first letters from inside the scroll itself. And we had a winner within a couple of months. And I mean, it was just a terrific breakthrough in terms of seeing that text be extracted, because of course, that's just the nose of the camel in the tent, right? Exactly. And wonderfully, it seems that two people have arrived at the same information via different techniques. Is that right? People had their different techniques and they were competing against each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. And because the segmentation team, which is a team that works for the prize organizers, because they're producing things to work on from inside the scroll that are sort of common, they're in the open, people are working on those same regions with different methods. That's one of the things that really struck me about this project is the nature of it being a community, because it seems to me that so much of the debate about AI is about guardianship and about big corporations control and so on. Whereas this, it seems like very much a community practice in the sense that you've got passionate individuals building on the work of others to achieve a common goal in a way. And it's really interesting to see the people who've made the breakthrough saying, look, I just want to read the papyri. Okay, of course, I'd love to win the prize. But ultimately, I just want to know what these things say. You know, I do also love that spirit of collaboration, even in a competitive environment. I mean, yes, there is money on the line. But what you're hearing is that the contestants are using the money so that they can compete. I think that is really interesting. It wasn't necessarily a straightforward decision for us to make, however. You know, it's tempting, as I think it always is, when people are doing science and people are looking for breakthroughs, to sort of hoard what they have for the biggest impact they can possibly get. But in this case, we own this literature as a global community. And it really is important to work as a community to bring it back. And in terms of how you envisage working with documents in the future. Do you think this particular competition has opened it up in terms of, will you now gain access to more scrolls because of this project that you're doing now? I think that it's clear that the problem is now solvable and that every one of the closed Herculaneum scrolls potentially represents a unique work from antiquity that we could be reading if we were to just do the scanning and allow the technology to be applied. So in that sense, it's absolutely going to be a forcing function, a push toward doing exactly that. This is maybe a technical question, which is easy to answer, and it may be a stupid question, in fact. But one of the things I've been hearing a lot about is about AI hallucinations, about this idea that AI, despite its extraordinary computing abilities, can produce wrong data. Do you have guardrails against that happening with this? It's absolutely true that with large language models and other kinds of structures AI can take us to a place that we don't really want to go and that doesn't match, you know, what we know reality is supporting. And we have a technical team that's being very careful about monitoring every solution that's being submitted to this prize contest so that we can see that's not happening. Right. No one's really using large language models yet because we're looking at the structure of things inside tomography. 
So this is purely a structural approach for AI to help us enhance a signal that's really tough to elicit from the tomography. So there isn't a chance yet in this framework for large language models and hallucinations to play much of a role. But you're right to bring that up because it's an important uh, cautionary part of using AI. And tell me, what's your sense? Do you think you're going to get this breakthrough by the end of the year? The deadline is effectively the end of the year. So do you feel like we're going to get significant tranches of the text translated? Well, you asked me that. I've been making predictions for two decades, and I'm not <laughs> sure that they were all really right. But I think we're honing in on a really exciting moment. And if I had to make a prediction, that moment being a grand prize winner in this prize, I would say we're going to have competitive submissions even before the end of the calendar year, probably by the American holiday for Thanksgiving, which would be the end of November. Okay, well, watch this space. Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, if the Vesuvius challenge is one, what might we expect the scrolls to contain? Much of what's been discovered in the scrolls in the past is philosophy in the school of the ancient Greek materialist philosopher Epicurus. Andrew Wallace Hadrill is Director of Research and Honorary Professor of Roman Studies at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge and a former director of the British School at Rome and of the Herculaneum Conservation Project. I asked him about the city, the villa and the scrolls. Andrew, I know you've written books on this subject, but I'm going to ask you very, very briefly to tell us about Herculaneum, the place. What was Herculaneum and what happened to it? Okay, Herculaneum is Pompeii's little sister, let's say. It's a much smaller city, but it's still a city. It's just round the bay from Pompeii. And I think one of the most interesting things is that though it's quite close to Pompeii and close to the same volcano, the same crater of Vesuvius, the fact that they're slightly apart means that the eruption affects them in different ways. And Herculaneum is covered in a pyroclastic flow that comes, if volcanologists have got this right, it comes down, say, about midnight on the day of the eruption, which may or may not be the 24th of August, when the eruption enters this phase of pyroclastic surge. Herculaneum is hit Pompeii is not yet hit. And the big difference to us is that this hot, great billowing clouds of gas and and ash and material, they set around everything and they carbonize organic materials. And those organic materials include papyri. There you go. Fantastic summary. Thank you. Let's talk a bit about the Villa of the Papyri then. This rather grand villa and people who visit Los Angeles can see a replica of it in the form of the Getty Villa. How august an institution was this? How great a building was it in the context of Herculaneum? In some ways, I think it's a bit easy to take the Villa of Papyri for granted. And you look at it and say, oh, yeah, well, the Romans had villas. And indeed, we have dozens. We have hundreds of Roman villas. And we have dozens around the Bay of Naples. And on the whole, these villas, which are mansions out in the countryside, though in truth, the Romans used the same word villa just for simple farmhouses. Uh, But these are farmhouses that have hypertrophied. They've become just exaggerated. And there are many really, really impressive ones, but none of the others is at the scale of the Villa of the Papyri. This, for once, you have a very good idea of who the owner was. 
And the owner, in my view, has to be the family of Calpurnius Piso. So the first Calpurnius Piso, the consul, is attacked by Cicero. And so it's from Cicero's in Paisonem, his, his invective against Paiso, that you get a very good image of a classic Roman noble, arrogant, proud of his ancestral busts and so on. And the extraordinary thing is he has a tame philosopher. He has an Epicurean philosopher, Philodemus, and Cicero regards that as a source of mockery. Ah, interesting. <laughs> of course, Cicero, in a court case, can make fun of someone for reading Epicurean philosophy. Let's face it, Cicero's own works of philosophy show profound knowledge of Epicurean, Stoic and all the other schools of philosophy. So Cicero was into this stuff too. But right. he can mock Calpurnius Piso. In my view, the dates of the villa, it's a bit too late by a couple of decades. It's a bit too late for Cicero's enemy. I think it's his son, but it's, it's a family continuity. His son was a major figure in the court of Augustus and Tiberius, uh, really powerful, really, really rich. So you know that this villa belongs to the people at the very, very top of Roman society. Right. There are an awful lot of villas. You say, God, this guy must have been stinking rich. And indeed, right. this guy was stinking rich. But he may just be someone who made money in business, you know? But this is someone rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And that comes out in everything, everything about this villa. It's just in a different league. And this idea of having the tame philosopher is central to our story, isn't it? Because sure. the library that was kept by Philodemus provided us with the scrolls which are now being interpreted. Exactly. But I think it's important to see the sort of scale of investment that's going on in this villa. So partly it's a matter of size. It is absolutely gigantic. It's the same width as the city of Herculaneum itself. Right. It's absurd. And then it's as famous for its sculptures as it is for its scrolls. And loads of Roman houses, Roman villas, have got examples of sculpture. But none of them have so many <laughs> examples. I mean, we're talking about a hundred really high quality. And they're not just marble, but a very large number are bronze, not marble. And this is the most expensive, the most difficult to work. It's a really complex process, casting bronze. So you've got really, really top stuff here. Yeah, you've got exquisite painted decoration, mosaics and so on. So part of seeing the library is seeing it in the context of this is the villa that has got everything. Right. It's got the things that ordinary villas do not touch. And it is a quite extraordinary thing that we haven't found papyri in any other villa, there are a couple of scraps of papyrus, which are actually documentary papyri from the city of Herculaneum itself. But to have a literary papyrus, the whole scroll, there is nowhere else that has a whole scroll, let alone a library of hundreds of these things. And is it right that since Herculaneum was discovered in the 18th century, mm. there has been a consistent process to try and find out what these scrolls tell us and the nature of these scrolls and what kind of library it was indeed? That's right. From 1750 onwards, 
basically, it's been a source of enormous excitement. The reason for the excitement is so obvious. We have a limited amount of ancient literature. I say limited in the sense that you can't easily expand it. But actually, the classics of classical literature are on the whole pretty well preserved. We have a good idea of what most classical literature looked like. But we know at the same time that there's loads and loads that we don't have. And for a long time, Egypt has been our main source. The Oxyrhynchus papyri and other papyri. And there, the lovely thing is the hot, dry conditions of Egypt preserve papyrus. And what's been found there is, on the whole, rubbish heaps. And people used... <laughs> literary papyri to do their sums on and then threw them out. You know, they were just yeah. scrapping it. Though there are some wonderful examples of complete scrolls, like the scroll of Aristotle's Constitution of Athens, which is in the British Library. It's an extraordinary and wonderful thing. And that comes from Egypt. So apart from Egypt, we've got very little to expand our repertoire of classical literature. And of course, the image of the lost library kind of morphs into the knowledge that Julius Caesar managed to burn the library in Alexandria, which of course was the greatest library in antiquity. Yeah. I don't suppose it was all burnt, but somehow in the course of his campaign, it did catch fire and there was great damage. And it becomes the symbol of everything we've lost, because the Ptolemies in Alexandria employed scholars to ransack ancient literature and do reliable editions, just as German scholars in the 19th century were doing reliable editions of what survived. Back then, in the 3rd century, 2nd century BC, you know, they were establishing the canon of literature. So if only we had the Library of Alexandria, Wow, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> and so you can see how easily one slips into thinking, but maybe the Villa of Papyri could be like the Lost Library of Alexandria. Maybe it could give us all that wealth of knowledge that we've lost. Exactly. And there's this wonderful thing about like a scholar in the Vatican in the 18th century who was able to use this extraordinary, and there's some wonderful drawings of it, of course, of this extraordinary technique involving weights and stretching out these carbonized fragments and so on. So right since then, there have been all sorts of mechanical, technological techniques used to try and interpret these works. I think that's right. I think back then it was a major technological challenge. And let's face it, even if you do manage to unwrap one of these scrolls, they are carbonized. Black ink on carbonized papyrus reads with enormous difficulty. So it always was a prodigious challenge for scholars to make it out. Though, in a funny way, it was made easier by the fact that there's something really weird about this library. It really does revolve around this figure of Philodemus, the very philosopher who Cicero thought was such a joke. There are up to three copies of his essays. You can think of them not as books, but essays. And who except the author would conceivably have more than one copy of a book? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's, it's the danger then that in 
amongst all these scrolls, you've just got more of the same. You've got another 10 copies of his essays. I think it's an acute danger. (laughs) The most likely thing is that the more scrolls we open, the more Philodemus we will read. And that's why I'm terribly sceptical about people who think, ah, we'll discover the lost books of Tacitus. No, we won't. (laughs) He hadn't even written them at the time (laughs) that the eruption happened. People will mention their favourite classical book. It would be an absolute miracle. Even a play of Sophocles. I think the best chance is that because Epicureans were really interested in science, in physics, It would be wonderful to have some lost texts on physics from antiquity. Right. I would get really excited about that. And let's face it, you know, (laughs) atomic theory and so on goes straight back to Epicurean philosophers. And the bit everyone knows about Epicurean philosophy is apparently the sort of eat, drink and be merry. Right. Which is not an important part of Epicurean philosophy. The important thing is everything in the world has a physical explanation. Forget about the gods. The gods may exist, but they're not interested in human life. We can explain things in terms of what we see and perceive and understand. And my golly, they made extraordinary progress in science. If we got hold of lost works like that, it wouldn't (laughs) help modern science all that much, but it really would help our understanding of where things were heading in antiquity. Yes, indeed. The whole series of belief systems we may now be able to get access to should that kind of text exist in that place. Yeah. 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 Tell me about this idea which is floated on the site of this project, you know, this scientific project, which says that there is a main library, not Philodemus's library, but an even bigger, greater library that's part of this villa site and therefore even greater riches in terms of papyri may exist somewhere else should further excavations be done. Is that plausible? Dream on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it's possible. You can't exclude it. I think it's pretty clear. We have to remember that Carl Weber, who excavated it, he was mega efficient. And he didn't just go around, pull down a few scrolls and leave the rest crumbled on the floor. And in fact, the principal room in which the papyri were found is visible today. It's very dangerous and difficult, but it's visible. And it's quite clear that they left nothing behind. So it would need to be a new space with a new library. Right. A different collection. Now, of course, you can't exclude that, not least because papyri were found in several other locations apart from the main location. So there's a plausible case that there are more. OK, well, that's a tantalising note to end on. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. The website for the Vesuvius Challenge is scrollprize.org and Andrew Wallace Hadrill's books on Herculaneum include Herculaneum Past and Future, published by Francis Lincoln. Coming up, a row over the appointment of a right-wing journalist as president of the Venice Biennale and Dorothea Lang's photograph of her husband and son. That's after this week's news bulletin. 
The Frick Pittsburgh Museum has postponed an exhibition of Islamic art, citing concerns regarding the ongoing war in Gaza. The planned exhibition, Treasured Ornament, Ten Centuries of Islamic Art, was to feature ancient and modern Islamic glassware, ceramics, metalwork, painting, weaponry and more. The Frick said in a press release last month that the show sought to invoke the rich history of the Islamic world and the shared human experiences that bind us. But the museum announced the postponement of the exhibition on 17th of October, ten days after Hamas's attack on Israel. Elizabeth Barker, the museum's executive director, told the Pittsburgh Tribune Review newspaper that the museum leadership realised that the exhibition would be traumatic for many people. Christine Mohammed, the executive director of the Pittsburgh chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, said it was disheartening to witness such insensitivity when blanket statements are made about an entire religion, particularly when they have the potential to incite harm in the Pittsburgh Muslim community. And Adam Hertzman of the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh has said that few people in the Jewish community would have been concerned about an exhibit on Islamic art because we understand that has nothing to do with Hamas. The foundation that oversees the Biennale de Sao Paulo has responded to an open letter published last month from workers who claim that poor management in this year's exhibition has subjected them to inadequate working conditions and discrimination. The organisers claim that they were surprised to learn about the letter published on the 18th of October and that managers in production, education and other departments were not contacted prior to its release. Among the claims in the letter was the assertion that the biennial created access for diverse workers without providing the necessary conditions for full support, even perpetuating the structures of violence and discrimination that are denounced in the art in the exhibition. The foundation's statement objected to the use of an open letter to raise the issues, but added that it will investigate the claims and, quote, adopt, if applicable, the appropriate measures. And finally, the suspected head of an alleged Egyptian antiquities trafficking ring, Serop Simonian, has been arrested in Germany and transferred to France. Investigators believe the octogenarian is the source behind a string of allegedly smuggled Egyptian antiquities sold for around 60 million euros to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Louvre Abu Dhabi via the Paris-based expert Christophe Kuniki. The criminal investigations into the widespread trafficking of these antiquities have seen the seizure of a gold sarcophagus and five other works from the Met and the indictment of seven dealers, collectors and curators in Paris, including Jean-Luc Martinez, the former president of the Musée du Louvre. Simonian denies wrongdoing. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. The 20th, 21st century art November sales in New York celebrate a momentous era in art history, beginning with the defining movements of the revolutionary impressionists to the cutting-edge contemporary stars of today. Dynamic collections from the industry legends Ivan and Genevieve Reitman, A Life in Pictures, and the collection of Jerry Moss are also featured in Christie's November sales series. Christie's invites you to discover works by Claude Monet, Joan Mitchell, Francis Bacon, and more at Christie's Rockefeller Center or online at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Pietrangelo Buttofuoco, a right-wing journalist and author whose books include a literary portrait of the former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, has been named as the next president of the Venice Biennale. Members of Italy's ruling coalition, which is led by the far-right leader of Brothers of Italy, Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, have claimed that the appointment will remove a left-wing stranglehold over the 128-year-old organisation. Opposition politicians have accused the government of carrying out an assault on the country's cultural institutions and representing 
a chilling vision of how the right thinks about the cultural institutions of our country. So what does this mean for the Biennale, whose next incarnation opens in April next year and whose artistic director is the Brazilian curator Adriano Pedrosa? I spoke to our correspondent James Imar. James, tell me a bit more about Pietrangelo Butafuoco. So Butafuoco is a journalist. Uh, he's identified as a right-wing journalist who has a history of right-wing politics. So he was a member of the youth wing of the Italian social movement, which was the neo-fascist party that was a precursor to Brothers of Italy, the party that uh, George Maloney, the current prime minister, is head of. He's kind of steeped in right-wing politics in terms of you know familial connections, an uncle and a grandfather and so on, that were all part of that right-wing movement, right? Yes. He's of a similar generation to Georgia Maloney, and she was very, very active in youth politics. Both of them were part of this youth wing of the Italian social movement, who were, you know, they were very active. They sort of went on on camps that were strangely called Camp Hobbit. They had a sort of a Tolkien obsession, and that was really his sort of incubator. So I suppose he's quite rooted not only within Brothers of Italy, but also the current management of the party. And the claims being made for this appointment by brothers in Italy, I think they've been described by people on the left as chilling. And I don't think that's an exaggeration, some of the language they're using around this appointment. Tell us more. Yeah, I suppose one thing to say is that this this forms part of a pattern. So this isn't the first time that brothers of Italy have been called out for apparently placing their mates in top positions of cultural institutions. But yes, the way that this was really celebrated, this appointment was interesting. It was celebrated with very colourful language, in particular by a guy called Raffaele Speranzon, who's a senator born in Venice, so very close to what goes on in the Biennale. I suppose he observes quite closely what happens in his city. And he's really been seen as one of the main creators of this situation, one of the driving forces behind the appointment of Buttafuoco. He was actually the person that announced Buttafuoco's appointment and yes, he described in this Comunicato Stampa, this press note that was circulated, as another glass ceiling has been shattered. And he was celebrating the fact, in his eyes, that the left has had a stranglehold over the Biennale Foundation and that this had really been broken. He described the Biennale Foundation as a fiefdom of the left, a place that the left placed their acolytes and their mates, and that was no longer going to happen. And Brothers of Italy was going to choose people on the basis of their credentials and their expertise and their competence. Absolutely. And and it's clear that, as you said, there's a pattern here. And I know that also in your article, there's this idea of it being a sea change that will affect every cultural and social institution across Italy. I mean, it really is an extremely ambitious program, isn't it? It's, it's an ideological program relating to cultural institutions across Italy. Yeah, you see that the party is really trying to place its stamp on the cultural life here. And to use culture to push its agenda and really weave a narrative that helps it strike a chord with the electorate. And there have been some very high profile cases. So I suppose one of the biggest cases that we've had so far is the head of the RAI, which is the national broadcaster, almost the BBC of Italy. And there was a lot of criticism of the party, both from opposition politicians and people within RAI itself, when its current director was pushed out to make way for somebody that was seen to be Maloney's ally. The first that was pushed out was a guy called Carlo Fortes, who has a history running uh, opera theatres. 
uh, and he was sent to the uh, Teatro San Carlo in Naples. Somebody else was pushed out of their job there to make way for him. Interestingly, that particular decision was turned over by a local court and Stefan Lissner, the person that was at the Opera Theatre, pushed out in order to make way for the Rye director, was then reinstated. So, so, yeah. so these, these decisions aren't always deemed to be legal. So Rye was one of those big examples. The Maxi Foundation, which runs the museum in Rome, is another big example of a museum that now is run by a Maloney ally. And uh, the Venice Biennale is being seen as the latest example in a string of examples. It's interesting, this idea of sort of right-wing journalists, because I know that you mentioned the Maxi Foundation there and, and Alessandro Giuli, who is head of that foundation, is also a right-wing journalist. We know that Vittorio Scarbi is a big figure in, in the culture ministry in Italy, and he too comes from journalism. Is this a sort of common thing in Italy, that journalists have that sort of power to move into institutions? And it's not quite the same in the UK, I wouldn't say. No, there are lots of people that identify as journalists in Italy, and it's often not the only thing they do. Vittorio Sgabi is a good example. He's, you know, an art critic. He's run towns. He's been a mayor, for example. He's run cultural assessorates within towns. Yes, what you say is very interesting because, of course, Gennaro San Giuliano, the culture minister, is himself an ex-journalist. He ran one of the big channels on Rai. So I wonder whether the skill set that we often identify with journalists, that of narrating, recounting, communicating information in a sort of concise way is perhaps something that now leaders of cultural institutions are being asked to do, not only curate exhibitions and chart out the future artistic paths of of these institutions, but also speak to the public in a certain way. Perhaps that's something that directors of institutions are going to be called on to do more and more. Right. Project a narrative, in other words. Project a narrative. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? One of the interesting things about Pietrangelo Buttafuoco is, is, of course, that he's just written a biography of Berlusconi, arguably the most famous right-wing politician in Italy since Mussolini, I would guess. Yes, so Buttafuoco is also a writer, so he's very much a right-wing Renaissance man. And this is the latest of his many books, Pietro Lui, Blessed Is He. The subtitle is A Pan to the Arch Italian Silver Berlusconi, which I think in itself, not having read it, it seems having sort of read the, the synopsis, it seems to be a sort of an ironic take on Berlusconi. Right. Uh, who is this man and why did he strike such a chord with Italians? From what I understand, his take on Berlusconi is probably quite positive, which is interesting considering Berlusconi is so contested. You know, people looking at Berlusconi from the outside, I suppose, associate him with his bunga bunga parties the fact that uh, he had almost sort of 20 court cases to sit through and was ultimately convicted for paying an underage prostitute for sex. So I guess the key thing is then what the next stage is, because is it right that there's an evaluative process? So it's not, it's not 100% confirmed, or is that just a formality? Yeah, it's basically a formality. This needs to be assessed by the Senate and the House of Deputies in Italy, and then a decree will be published and from that point, it's official. But I think the, the papers here in Italy are taking this as read and uh, Buttafuoco is, is going to be the next president of the Biennale. Right. I mean, of course, it's been announced Adriano Pedrosa's Biennale, which is coming next year, next April, is going to be called Foreigners Everywhere. And he's talked about the kind of artists that will feature in it. But Foreigners Everywhere is about as far away in terms of slogans from Maloney's government's attitude, right? I mean, you couldn't get a more combustible situation than that kind of Biennale in Maloney's Italy. Yeah, and it's interesting. I suppose the Biennale has not shied away from criticising Maloney's policies. I think we saw that with the last architecture Biennale. The curator, Leslie Loco, the Scottish architect, 
really seems to take a stand against Maloney, and particularly on the point that a number of Ghanaian curators were denied visas and weren't able to take part in the exhibition. That happened when the Italian embassy in Ghana refused these curators' visas, and critics basically criticised the ambassador as being a careerist, basically, and trying to ingratiate herself to Georgia Maloney. So that was very, very quickly picked up on and called out by the Biennale. And I suppose it'll be very interesting to see who creates future exhibitions at the, at the Biennale and to see what sort of message they might be trying to push and whether or not they might be trying to criticise in some way the government's line. Indeed. I mean, I suppose the thing about this next Biennale, the Art Biennale for next year, is that actually Butafuoco won't take up his role until a month before it opens. So there's very little chance, I guess, for him to make much of a difference to this one. But you can see in the future that there might be much more of those kind of disputes, debates, indeed rows that you were just talking about. Yeah, I suppose the Biennale has been combustible in the past, as we saw last year politically. Perhaps the next edition is looking like it could be quite tension laden yeah. based on, you know, the sort of the combination of personalities. Yeah. And it'll be very interesting, I think, to see over the next four years, because that's the, the length of the mandate that Buttefogo has and that all presidents have, to see in what way the Biennale might change, what direction it might take. Because it's quite broad, its remit as well. It's not just, of course, the Art Biennale and the Architecture Biennale. It's the Film Festival as well, right? In a way, that's the most high-profile event. Yeah, exactly. So with regards to the Film Festival, we've seen members of the party criticising that particular institution as apparently being biased. In fact, it was about a year ago, just before the election of Maloney, during the electoral period when the Film Festival was taking place, that the Film Festival, part of the Biennale, was accused of issuing propaganda this related to a film that seemed to compare Maloney to Mussolini. And a member of the party, Moliconi, he's called Federico Moliconi, who's the culture spokesman of Brothers of Italy, basically sort of said, yes, this sort of film shouldn't be shown at the Biennale. This is pure propaganda. So I wonder whether actually we see that the Biennale has kind of been in the eye line. It's been the target of Brothers of Italy for a while. And perhaps they've, they've been really thinking about trying to shape the Biennale for a number of months. I guess it's one of the most important kinds of soft power that the government has, right? There are few festivals more famous in their fields than the Venice Film Festival and the Venice Biennale for Art. The eyes of the world are on Italy and that offers them, therefore, a massive propaganda opportunity apart from anything else. Absolutely. I think if you look at big visual art events, the Biennale really is the, the shopping window for Italy. And it would be a massive prize for, for the government if it were able to really try and bend that institution to its will and start to try and do the things that the party's been trying to do with, for example, rye programming, where you see that the, the government really has direct say over what happens culturally. They've really been sort of shameless in in programming and curating. So something that emerged last week was it was basically a row over a Lord of the Rings exhibition that's been arranged to commemorate 50 years since Tolkien's death. That's going to be taking place in a, in a Rome museum. George Maloney is a massive Tolkien fan, as many members of the party are, and it's quite interesting to try and work out why. But basically in the 1970s, Tolkien mania swept through the party. I think the idea is that that fantasy world of unknown enemies almost represented this political outlier's fight against the left. And she remains a big Tolkien fan who cites books in her speeches, dressed up as Tolkien characters and went to schools while she was a young political activist. And Gennaro San Giuliano, who's the culture minister, announced this exhibition at a political rally, which was the Fonte Gioventù, 
uh, it was a rally for them, which is the youth wing of the party, and said that he would be organising this exhibition as a little favour to the people attending the rally, so to the party, basically. Vittorio Sgarbi, who's an undersecretary in the culture ministry, subsequently said in an interview that this was almost a present to Maloney, this exhibition. So you can see where the government has the ability to directly call the shots. For example, with this exhibition that's going to be costing them €250,000, it doesn't really hold back. And it's going to be very interesting to see, as time goes on, what perhaps you know the government's followers is going to be doing at institutions like the Maxi Museum and the Biennale, and whether there's going to be that direct expression of the party's vision, basically. Thank you, James, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. You can read more on this story on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. On Sunday, the 5th of November, the exhibition Dorothea Lang Seeing People opens at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. It asserts that the art of portraiture was at the heart of Lang's instrumental contribution to the history of documentary photography. Among the photographs in the show is Maynard and Dan Dixon, made in 1930. Philip Brookman, a consulting curator in the Department of Photographs at the NGA, organised the show and he told me more about the work. You can see an image of the photograph on our Instagram and in the web story for this episode. Philip, Dorothea Lang said that she had never not been sure that she was a photographer, which seems to me extraordinary given that she had not held a camera, it seems, at the point at which she thought this. So tell me more. That's right. I mean, this is coming from Dorothea Lang so many years later, but her memory is that she had never been sure that she would not be a photographer any more than she was herself. That's kind of what she said. And I think that uh, this is when she was still in high school or, you know, just a teenager. And I think that she was kind of convinced about her powers of observation she had spent a lot of time walking the streets of New York and just totally interested in what was going on around her. So a bit of background, Lang was born Dorothea Netzhorn, her maiden name, and she grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey. And when she was quite young, she contracted polio, uh, which she also considers to be a really important event in her life, one that gave her a sense of empathy for other people. So she had polio, recovered, but walked with a limp for her entire life. And then she also watched as her family fell apart. Also as a young person, her father left the family and her mother really then had to raise her and her brother. She would go every day to school in New York City where her mother worked as a librarian in a Lower East Side school. So Lang grew up in this environment of I guess I would think of it as kind of family turmoil, but also an environment that was conducive to creativity. I mean, she saw all this life on the streets of New York, simply walking between the ferry terminal that would bring her from home to school in New York. And she considers this to be really a a seminal experience, just observing life on the street and also being fearless about it. Yeah, but it's curious, isn't it, that she chose photography as her medium, which was not necessarily an obvious thing when she was a young woman. You know, she might have chosen to be an artist using drawing and painting and not a photographer. So what was her exposure to photographs that suggested that photography was a route? Well, her first exposure to photography as a process 
would be, uh, you know, her first job right out of high school. Hmm. She was hired by a photographer, very well-known studio photographer in New York City by the name of Arnold Ginty. And his studio was a place that so many well-known and wealthy people would come to have their, their portraits made, also some artists. And so Lang was really the receptionist. And so she, before this, didn't really have experience as a photographer. She may have watched people making photographs and been interested in it and, and seen photographs. And at that time, it, it's not like there were picture magazines on the coffee table at home. No. It was a very different time, and photography wasn't as ever-present in our lives as it is now. And so it's a bit surprising that she would come to photography, but I think in looking at her work and reading you know, a lot of what she said, I feel like it was just a given she would be a photographer, but also it was something that was different. Her parents wanted her to go to Columbia Teachers College in New York and, and be a teacher, you know, have a respectable profession. And uh, she did that for just a very short time before she, she got this job. So she knew she wanted to be a photographer from a young age. And, you know, the way she describes it, you know, it really comes from her interest in just looking at people. What I imagine that was a way that she would have an excuse to look at people, to see people. One of the arguments of your show is that so much attention has been focused on her social photography, the idea of photography as a kind of social change of documentary, such a key linchpin of documentary photography. But you're looking at that very idea of her focusing on people and her humanity, that actually it was through people that she reached that sort of social dynamism, if you like. Yeah, I mean, the the real premise of this exhibition is that Lang began her career as a studio portrait photographer. And that experience then led her to be a, an innovative portrait photographer in the field outside of the studio. And so it was a, a kind of long transition. But I think that her long experience and training as a portrait photographer working in the studio, you know, allowed her to understand better how to interact with people, how to pose people, how to light, you know, all of the technical things that you need to understand to be, you know, the great documentary photographer that she was. But, you know, she needed that experience. And it's rarely talked about, you know, that side of Lang as a as a studio portrait photographer. Our exhibition, we, you know, we wanted to do something that's different than all of the previous projects about Dorothea Lang, and there have been many. Right, exactly. Yeah. She's in some ways a, a photographer who's so well-known for just a handful of works that she made, you know, primarily in the 1930s. And, and so we wanted to kind of expand that understanding. And, you know, we were sitting around one day and said, what about portraiture, <laughs> you know? And that really led to this exhibition that focuses in on what is a portrait? You know, it asks so many questions. What is a portrait? And and how does Lang's experience as a portrait photographer impact on all of her later work? And then, you know, how did that kind of enable her to be a real innovator as a documentary photographer of people? And of course, the work that we're going to focus on, which is called Maynard and Dan Dixon, it's not a portrait in a conventional sense. It does not depict a face, but it's absolutely a portrait in the sense that it depicts four wonderful hands. Tell us more. Well, I'll start by just describing the photograph. It's called Maynard and Dan Dixon. It's a picture made in uh, 1930, and it 
shows a young boy, and you just see his torso, being held by two enormous hands. I mean, they fill the frame, and they look so much bigger (laughs) than the boy's hands. And then the child is resting his tiny hands on his father's hands. And the only reason you know who the people are, really, is from the title, Maynard and Dan Dixon. So who are they? In 1919, shortly after Lang had moved from New York to San Francisco, she married one of the most well-known artists in California at the time, Maynard Dixon. And he was a painter of Western subjects. At that time, Lang was younger than he, and, and he was a big influence on her and really connected her to a side of the world that she didn't know at the time, which was the great outdoors, the outdoor landscape. And communities of people, indigenous people especially, who Dixon was quite connected to and and painted a lot, you know, going back to the turn of the century. So Maynard Dixon is the father of their two children, Dan Dixon and John Dixon. Dan was born in 1925 and John a few years later, 1928. And so the intimacy of the family and the family unit, I think, is kind of central to this photograph. And, you know, it's a a scene that unfolds in in every family with children. The bond between the parents and the children is essential, and that's what's conveyed in, in this photograph. So... So Dixon's enormous hands are wrapped around his son, and the son is kind of holding on to his father's hands. And it seems so natural, just an everyday scene, not something in any way remarkable or something that would emerge from a a well-known portrait studio in San Francisco. And so how did Lang get from a studio portrait photographer photographing some of the, the high society of San Francisco and you know, well-known people. And, you know, she became the sought-after photographer in San Francisco society beginning around 1920. And so how does she get from that to make these portraits that are, are so intimate and so kind of connected to, you know, not only her personal life, but also to an emerging kind of modernist aesthetic in visual art that I think Lang was really interested in. And she talks about how she didn't want to just be stuck in the studio making portrait photographs. She wanted to, you know, begin to experiment and do something more and make something kind of outside of the work that she was trained to make in in what she considered to be kind of stuffy environments in New York. And there's a whole kind of language of hands in modernist photography as well, isn't there? So like Georgia O'Keeffe's hands by Stieglitz, for instance, which are very famous. So she would have been aware of that tradition and want to make her own contribution to it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. In 1923, Lang travels with Dixon and they go first to Chicago and then to New York City, where Dixon is having an exhibition. And at that time, Lang visits a gallery, the Anderson Galleries, where Alfred Stieglitz is hosting a series of exhibitions. And one of the exhibitions that Lang and Dixon did see in New York was an exhibition of Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings, a well-known exhibition. And it's quite likely, if not inevitable, that Lang at that time would have met Stieglitz and known or seen his portraits of Georgia O'Keeffe. And it was you know, before and just after this exhibition in New York, 
Stieglitz was exhibiting his photographs of Georgia O'Keeffe and just parts of her body, her hands, her torso, her legs, parts of her body that he called portraits and that would convey a kind of sense of who O'Keeffe was, her personality, her character. You know, she's an artist, so her hands are so integral to that process. And I think that it's quite likely that Lang saw those photographs of O'Keeffe's hands by Stieglitz and would have, you know, understood their importance in a kind of emerging modernist aesthetic in in photography, but also in, in visual art. You know, there was a history of artists going back years before in creating portraits of people like drawing, you know, like a part of their body or their their hands or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it was something that was in the air that, that Lang was just interested in. And she, throughout her career then, focused on hands as an expressive part of a picture. And one of the things, of course, which is so telling about this image that you've chosen is its relation to probably her most famous photograph, which is the migrant mother photograph. And of course, there too, the hand of the mother cradled underneath her chin is so important. But also it's that relationship between a parent and children that's so central to that and the intimacy of that image. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, you know, what's interesting to me is how in Lang's photograph, Maynard and Dan Dixon, you don't see their faith. You don't really know who these people are. And yet you know so much about them just through the position of the hands and the you know, the kind of exchange between the two. I mean, you know that the intimacy between the two and the bond between the two is is essential. And so, I mean, to me, that says so much more about these two people than just a picture that would show their faces. That's right. It's tender, but it's also fragile, isn't it? Inevitably fragile because it's a child's hand and an adult hand. It, it somehow conveys so much just in that dynamic. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, Lang talked about Maynard Dixon's hands. She was struck by how large and how agile his hands were. And that was what, for her, enabled him to be as skilled of an artist, you know, a draftsman and a, a painter as he was. So, I mean, she sort of like, I think, focused in on letting us know something about who he was just by looking at his hands. He's both an artist and a father. And that's all in that picture. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Dorothea Lang Seeing People is at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. from the 5th of November until the 31st of March next year. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack, and David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Brent, Andrew, James, and Philip. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.